Welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Imagine you were nominated to a committee, and that committee was charged with deciding the basic rules for a society that is to be set up on Mars. The expedition of colonists are leaving in a year, so you'd better get started right away. As you ride the maglev train to the meeting room, questions into your mind. Remember, you and others on the committee have to decide on the basic rules and structure of the new society to be formed on Mars. How do you do it? Where do you start? Is there anything you can rely on as a basic fundamental rule or principle on which to base this new society? Is there anything you can rely on as a basic like rule or principle on which to base this new society? What do you bring with you from how earthlings have tried and failed to set up a just society? What do you leave back home with the Terrans? There aren't any extrinsic constraints on your project. You get to decide everything along with your fellow committee members. By the way, the book Red Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson is an interesting meditation on more or less exactly this scenario, with one important difference being that the first 100 colonists to Mars are, are essentially wondering whether they should revolt against their earthly overseers to decide on new rules for society. And so there's a bit less of a, a clean slate involved, and also no chance to hop off the rocket since they're well on their way to Mars before the real discussion starts up. This setup is kind of, sort of, where a guy, John Rawls, wanted us to start in a book called A Theory of Justice. Rawls basically defined what it is to be a liberal in the mid-20th century. Liberalism here is a political philosophy concerned with liberty, individual rights, and defining rules for society, which someone might agree to antecedent to one's participation in society. Uh, so, you, so you might think of Rawls and modern liberalism um, as, a, as a continuation of the sort of state of nature theories from the Enlightenment era uh, that, that heavily informed the American and French revolutions. So things like uh, people like Hobbes, uh, Locke, Rousseau, and then also people like Jefferson. Um, so think liberal in the sense of, of something like maybe libertarian or civ civil liberties, um, rather than liberal in the sense of a liberal reading of the text or liberal versus conservative policies. Right? To, to some extent, to be a liberal in the political philosophy sense, um, to some extent, to be a liberal in the political philosophy sense of the word is still defined by some similarity in foundational perspective to Rawls and his influences like the state of nature uh, theorists of the Enlightenment era. Here's Charles Mills on liberalism. We'll hear more about Charles Mills later in the episode. So our starting point is the political philosophy of liberalism, but I need to quickly clarify that I'm using the word as a term of art, the way political philosophers and political theorists do. 
So liberalism does not refer just to the left wing of the Democratic Party, which we saw in action in, um, just last night. Rather, its reference is the political ideology that develops over the 17th to 19th centuries in Western Europe in opposition to the doctrines of monarchical absolutism, natural socialist states, ascriptive social hierarchy, and inherited status. Liberalism becomes the philosophy of the new social order indeed of modernity itself. The rule of law, limited government, democratic consent, individual equality, equal rights, all become the slogans of the revolt against the Asha regime. Hence the American Revolution's famous opening statement of the Declaration, penned by Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And the liberty, equality, fraternity of the French Revolution being a liberal commits you to these broad principles. So from this perspective, we have liberals on the right who insist on market solutions and liberals on the left who argue for a state that intervenes on behalf of the disadvantaged. But by these minimal criteria, both groups count as liberals. Hence, conservatives characterization of themselves sometimes as classical liberals. So we're the real liberals. You guys have usurped the title. You're really socialists. So liberalism can then be seen as the most important political ideology of the last few hundred years. Some might say a liberal is someone who thinks society should be governed by rules that allow for maximal individual freedom, consistent with the freedoms of others. Something like that thought is shared between libertarians and center-left liberals. The opposite of liberalism is something like American evangelical conservatism or Islamic fundamentalism or Catholic monarchism or even left-wing anti-liberalism, like some forms of, of communism where these groups want to live in a society defined by one culture and one set of norms and expectations through and through, regardless of how it infringes on individual freedoms or liberties. I find it helpful to think of liberalism in terms of fundamental opposition to an imposed monoculture. Um, that's not totally accurate, but this kind of a start is, is like liberalism is, is against imposing a sort of monoculture or one single set of, of values or one single idea of what it is to live in a good society on everybody. I am uh, Chris Fryman. I am an associate professor of philosophy at William & Mary. I work on political philosophy, uh, specifically immigration, distributive justice, uh, democratic theory, uh, and I've also written uh, on John Rawls. I talked with Chris Fryman about John Rawls. We, we started talking about these sorts of cases where you have to decide what to do in imperfect circumstances and with a lack of constraints on what sorts of solutions you can employ. So a utilitarian is, is someone who thinks that the right thing to do is the thing that produces the best results, uh, more specifically, the, the thing that produces the most happiness on net for everyone affected. So if we're tasked with setting up a society, we might just try to maximize the overall happiness or well-being or, or whatever without regard for rights, fairness, or justice or the like. So utilitarianism in its pure form says something like 
anything goes as long as it maximizes well-being. However, you might also think there's something unfair about that. It would be unfair, for instance, to randomly decide that some people will be unpaid laborers or slaves so that many more others will have minimal, if any, responsibility. That might maximize well-being overall. The benefits of the many might outweigh the burden being put on the few, but it would be unfair and unjust. And so you might think that we shouldn't set up our Martian society that way. Here we might think of Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. It seems like they could say something like, uh, look, I'm not just a resource here to promote the, the common good. I, I have rights. I deserve the same sort of moral consideration as everyone else. Right. So we might be able to justify the slave society to the haves, but we couldn't justify it to the have-nots in any way that would be remotely satisfying to them. They deserve equal consideration, and treating them as a mere means to the end of a society with the most overall well-being is not giving them equal moral consideration. We can't say, hey, you've got to be a slave so everyone else can have cheaper products and expect them to go along with it. So, for example, no one would choose principles that would permit things like slavery or Jim Crow uh, because it would be irrational to choose these things from behind the veil of ignorance because you might very well end up being, uh, say, a member of uh, the, the enslaved class. It's a non-starter because if there's a chance that I might end up a slave, I'm not even going to get on the rocket headed to Mars. I'll just stay on Earth. I'm not going to risk it. I, don't, I won't agree to live in a society where I might become a slave. So then how might you actually give everyone equal moral consideration in this case? Chris asks us to consider the case where we're all stranded out at sea and we've run out of food and we have to decide whom to eat. The utilitarian thing to do, he jokes, would be to eat the philosopher. And so maybe the utilitarian thing to do is to eat the philosopher. But as we just said, that's not giving equal moral consideration to the philosopher. At, at least arguably it's not. So we might not want to do that because we might think that people are fundamentally equal in their right to live. Well, one thing you could do, and in fact, in some of these real world scenarios, this is what in fact sailors have done, is you could draw lots. So you could say, look, uh, you know, maybe there are 10 people left. Uh, we draw lots. One has a spot on them, and if you get the one with the spot, you're the one who gets eaten. And now that seems like a fair way of deciding who gets eaten. So who gets to eat and who, who gets eaten? You draw lots. If we randomize it, which is basically what Frank Turek says in the Trolley Problem episode, it seems like we're refusing to allow any consideration weight on our judgment about who should live and who should die. No utilitarian consideration about what would produce the best outcome will be acceptable since everyone is fundamentally equal when it comes to whether they live or die. But of course, for that procedure to be fair, the participants have to be in a state of ignorance. So if you know which one has the spot, then of course you're gonna deliberately avoid it and you'll bias the process in your favor. And so that would be unfair. So you have to be in this condition of ignorance for this procedure for determining who gets to eat and who gets eaten to be fair. You have to be in a sort of state of ignorance about which stick has the dot on it for it to be fair. In fact, everyone should be in a state of ignorance. You want it kind of double blind. You wouldn't want the person holding the sticks to bias the process of drawing lots. 
and you wouldn't want anyone drawing sticks to bias their draw by, by knowing really anything about which stick has the dot on it. This ignorance secures the fairness of the process. It's a, it's a fair procedure because of the ignorance. But there's something very intuitive about this idea of, of, of drawing lots in a state of ignorance. It seems like it respects everyone in the way that they ought to be respected. It's, it's unbiased, it's impartial, it's fair. John Rawls thought that we should, if we're on the Martian Society Basic Rules Writing Committee, imagine that we have forgotten everything about ourselves as individuals while making rules. He thought one should put oneself in the quote-unquote original position, which is quote-unquote behind a veil of ignorance in order to make just rules for society. In the original position, behind my veil of ignorance, I don't know the color of my eyes, the color of my skin, my career or job position, my inherited wealth, my social connections, my mental ability, and so on. Now, Rawls thought that something analogous to this was the right way of figuring out how to distribute burdens and benefits and rights in society. So he thought, look, if you're just kind of reflecting on your, your moral and political beliefs as you are with your position in life and your interests and your biases, you won't be partial or you won't be impartial. You'll be biased. And so, so for example, maybe if you're someone who works in the medical field, you'll be inclined to political arrangements that benefit the medical field. Or if you're really rich, you might be inclined to choose principles that benefit the really rich. But again, that's not fair. That's about self-interest. That's not about fairness. That's not about justice. And so Rawls thought the right way to think about justice or to go about choosing principles of justice is to imagine yourself in a state of ignorance. So you don't know how wealthy you are. You don't know your race, your religion, your gender, your job, and so on and so forth. So you could think of it, you know, you're sort of a generic human being. That's all that you know. To put it more precisely, what you don't know is anything that you could use to bias the procedure in your favor. So it's okay to know that you're a human being. That seems relevant because it's going to tell you what, you know, what sort of things you need to live a, a good life as a human being. So that's fine to know. That's, that's actually relevant information. Uh, but you can't know what your religion is because that might incline you to favor a certain religion over others. The benefit of doing this is that we would naturally, selfishly come up with rules that don't arbitrarily benefit or burden any groups of people in society. I won't make a rule that says people with green eyes get paid double if I don't know whether or not I have green eyes. I won't make a rule that says black people are significantly more likely to live in areas burdened by pollution and environmental degradation if I don't know whether or not I'm a black person or I'm, I'm going to turn out to be a black person when the veil of ignorance is, is lifted. He thinks arbitrary benefits and burdens are unfair and thus unjust. And he thinks he can prove this by means of his original position thought experiment. You wouldn't impose arbitrary burdens or, ben or dole out arbitrary benefits if you yourself might be someone who is burdened or might not be someone who is benefited. It would be silly to do so because you're likely harming yourself or leaving yourself out. You're certainly not securing for yourself a good life or the, the best life you can, which is what you'd want to do when setting up the Martian 
colony, certainly you want to set up for yourself a minimally acceptable, uh, sufficient life. So the idea is that once you're behind the veil of ignorance, you're just focusing on what you would choose as a single individual, as principles of justice to govern society. But the idea is that the choice that you would make, since all you know is that you're a generic human, the choice that you would make is the choice that anyone would make in that scenario, because everybody's just thinking about what is, what is rational for a generic human to choose as principles governing society. So that's the basic pitch. A just society is a fair society, and a fair society is one with basic rules you would agree to before joining society if there was such a choice available to you. No one would agree to the rules of a game that arbitrarily applies benefits or burdens to some, but not others. Though we might agree to play with handicaps and golf or the like, because those in theory aren't arbitrary. Similarly, I won't voluntarily join a society with unfair rules. I'd leave to join another society or start my own if those options were available to me. I want to discuss a few critiques of Rawls today. I find his political thought deeply compelling, even though I don't consider myself a liberal in the political philosophy sense of the word. I suppose I am a liberal if there are only three options, liberal, centrist, and conservative, but that's not the way that we use these words in political philosophy. I find Rawls compelling, but I also find certain critiques of his thought deeply compelling as well. I think if any idea is worth engaging with seriously in 20th century political thought, then Rawls's original position certainly is. Let's take a break and then dive in. I want to reiterate a few philosophy podcasts that I've plugged in the past. Uh, go listen to them. So The Philosopher and the News is a great longer-form interview podcast about contemporary topics. Elucidations is a great philosophy podcast that is an interview with a professional philosopher on the really wide range of, of topics that professional philosophers uh, cover and think about. Overthink is a bit more of an accessible and fun intro to topics of contemporary relevance, and perhaps especially for a slightly younger, like millennial and Gen Z audience, it's sort of aimed at. Um, but it's got lots of interesting stuff for anyone of any age, I, I, I feel confident in saying. And Hi Fi Nation is pretty similar to Reductio in that the focus is on stories and carefully crafted audio narratives and philosophical discussions. Uh, check all of these out. They're really good. I'll, I'll post um, some links in the show notes. To recap, Rawls thinks we should pretend we can't remember who we are when making up the basic rules for society. I want to quickly explore one critique of Rawls as a means of understanding him more deeply, and then we'll get to what amount to deeper critiques of his project of defining justice in terms of a procedure one can employ to determine what the rules should be. Rawls thinks that the basic outcome of this procedure will be a form of egalitarianism. Think about it. You don't, if you don't know who you are in society, then the best outcome can be secured by ensuring that everyone's equal. So here's a, a simple thought experiment to, to kind of demonstrate this point. Imagine that you are cutting a cake and the procedure you and your friends have settled on to ensure a fair outcome is that you cut the cake, 
but then you get to choose which piece you're going to eat last. You're stuck inevitably with the smallest piece. So what are you going to do? Are you going to cut the cake so that one piece is bigger and hopefully it's still there when you get to take your piece at the end? Of course not. You're going to try to cut the cake as evenly as possible to ensure that the piece that is left over for you will be as big as possible. So the basic outcome we might expect is some form of egalitarianism if we employ Rawls's original position procedure and setting up the basic rules for society. So of course, Rawls says you want to protect yourself against the worst case scenario. So you want to make the floor as high as possible. Rawls thinks that one output of his procedure involving the veil of ignorance will be that no one will do anything unless it benefits the least well-off in society. You want to ensure that the least well-off in society will have the best possible life because you yourself might be one of the least well-off in society. But we might not stop there, Rawls thinks, good liberal that he is, in allowing that some forms of inequality will make everyone's lives better. We won't stop at an egalitarian society if we can prove that giving more rewards to some people will make everyone better off. That's a sort of analogy that economists like to use of making the pie bigger. Um, so that no one's piece of pie gets smaller, even if someone's share of the overall pie might get smaller. Maybe the person who invents a device that benefits everyone gets a little extra money, or the artist that creates beautiful music or movies or shows or the like gets a little more money than everyone else as a means of rewarding and incentivizing those who make everyone better off through their creative output. The idea here is that the least well-off in society will benefit if we allow some inequality in society because certain innovations or art pieces make everyone better off and some of them might only happen if we incentivize them through unequal rewards for great achievements. One issue I have with this is a deep disagreement with the notion that monetary incentives actually drive innovation. I think that people are far more driven by incentives of social status, esteem by one's peers, and intrinsic rewards of excelling in one's craft. One who works hard on fusion energy might be thinking, this is going to make me rich. But if it wouldn't make them rich, they'd likely still work hard at it just for the intrinsic reward of being the person to master nuclear fission. To be fair to Rawls, he clearly thinks this is true, that incentivizing some people with extraordinary monetary prizes will make everyone better off. But this isn't intrinsic to his procedure or his system of thinking about distributive justice. He can sacrifice this move easily without doing much damage to his overall project. Another worry that surfaces in my mind every time I think about the basic assumptions of Rawls's project is that I might not make things perfectly equal. One thing is for certain, society wouldn't look anything like it looks today, but it's unclear that I might not want to gamble a little and make some people better off in the hopes that I might be one of them. But if you say, look, I know there's, a, there's only a one in a million chance of me finding myself in the worst case scenario, then it seems like it could be rational to gamble. And I, and I actually think that that's, that's right. Why not set things up so that the least well-off still live a basically good life, but a few live an extravagantly good life? then you're just playing the numbers that you might end up quote-unquote winning the lottery, so to speak. 
personally, I wouldn't do this because I think I'm an egalitarian for deeper reasons than Rawls's thought experiments. But I can imagine being the type of person who would want to take a chance at being fantastically rich, especially if everyone else in society lives a basically good life in terms of material wealth. It'd certainly be more fun to be rich if everyone else was taken care of. So why not have a, a sort of lottery system that pools some wealth and then distributes it extremely unequally? So there's this, you know, really interesting criticisms along these lines where people will say, so John Harsanyi, who actually had something like an original position around the same time as Rawls, he says, this idea of, ma of maximizing the floor looks utterly bizarre once you consider probabilities, because it would mean you could never step on a plane again because the worst case scenario is you die in the plane crash. And so you're never getting on a plane even to go across the country for your dream job or your dream vacation. But he says that would be absurd because of course the odds of the worst case scenario coming to pass are super low. So take that gamble in that case. And so the worry is that Rawls excludes that information and it gets him the results he wants, but he doesn't have a great principled reason for in fact excluding that information. I don't think this is a really deep critique of Rawls. You can always tweak a few of his assumptions or an aspect of his procedure to deal with this sort of critique, but it nags at me every time I lay out the basics of his system of thought. Here's one tweak we could make to his thinking that pushes the whole system in a decidedly leftward direction. You choose your place in society last, just like the cake example. Imagine a long line of people choosing which position in society they will inhabit. Each position in society has an ID number and a little description. A14287 lives in a decent apartment in Manhattan and works in social services. B74189 lives in the countryside and grows food for everyone, and so on. Everyone in society chooses their position in a random order, but the committee always chooses last, just like in the cake example. This would ensure that the least well-off aren't just basically humane positions in society, but as well-off as possible, unless the committee is extremely selfless, right? If you unrandomize the assignment of positions in society, then you ensure that the committee will set things up in a far more egalitarian way, with the possible exception of the idea that some unequal rewards for innovation or the like might make everyone better off. Right? Either way, Rawls is going to say that we must protect against the very worst cases, because you wouldn't want there to be any chance that you're battling chronic illness while working multiple jobs to raise a family without external support and with inadequate health care. That's too hard a life to allow, even if we're gambling. It's too hard a life to even allow for the possibility of living. So Rawls himself, later on in his career, he, he sort of came off that argument a little bit. So he would say things like, I still think it's pretty good, but I can understand why other people don't quite buy it. But really what we need is something like a, a floor, a base. Mm -hmm. so the floor doesn't have to be as high as possible, uh, but it's got to be pretty good. It's got to be good enough. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe the thing to do is you say, nobody falls below this amount of income. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but beyond that, you know, we maximize the average or something like that. So that's not quite the difference principle, uh, but but it, it, it's kind of in the spirit of the difference principle, like you say. Like even if you know the probabilities, like th there might be some really terrible outcomes that you want to avoid, no matter you know matter no matter how low the chance is. Even even if it's like yeah, it's only like one in a million. Say well, yeah, like but that could happen. One in a million. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so you might say what that shows isn't that we should make the floor as high as possible, but we want to make an adequate floor so that mm -hmm. nobody falls below decency, uh, however we specify that. But beyond that, we maybe have some wiggle room. Okay, one last thing to flesh out what Rawls thinks we get out of the original position procedure. He thinks that at least two rules follow more or less directly from the procedure. The first principle is that no one will allow for society to violate basic rules or liberties that we take to be essential to individual dignity or human flourishing. And the liberties that are on this list are, are, are sort of familiar liberties. Uh, so you think of the Bill of Rights, uh, that, that's more or less on the right track. So things like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religious practice, occupational choice, and so on. And he thinks that these liberties take priority over other sorts of moral considerations. So he says, we can't sacrifice these liberties for gains in economic growth or you know, cultural values or anything like that, these things take, take priority uh, over all other political considerations. Rawls thinks it would be irrational to infringe on these basic liberties when setting up the basic rules for society. And he thinks it would be rational for people to choose to protect these sorts of basic liberties from behind the veil of ignorance uh, for, for some of the reasons we've already been discussing. So again, you could imagine you're behind the veil of ignorance and you don't know what religion you are. And you're, you're considering a principle that would allow for the suppression of religion R. You would not, you know, you would not extend uh, liberty of religious worship to members of religion R. Well, obviously, it would be irrational for you to choose that principle behind the veil of ignorance, because again, once the veil of ignorance is lifted, it could turn out, lo and behold, you are in fact a member of religion R. So if you're behind the veil of ignorance, you don't know what religion you are, you're going to want the freedom to practice your own religion regardless of what it is. And so this is how a principle like freedom of religious worship and practice uh, gets, gets on the list. The second principle we've already hinted at is called the difference principle. Remember, this is the second principle that Rawls thinks follows more or less directly from his procedure of going behind the veil of ignorance and then making the basic rules for society. And, and, the, and then the second principle, I'll, I'll focus in particular on what Rawls calls the difference principle. And this is a principle of distributive justice, which basically says uh, we want to make the income of the poorest members of society as, as great as possible. So we want to make the floor as high as possible. And he thinks that this would be the rational choice to make from behind the veil of ignorance. So again, imagine that you have no idea what your income is. So you could be very rich, or you could be very poor, you could be somewhere in between, and you have no idea. For Rawls, uh, he thinks you would choose a principle that says, if I end up among the poorest in society, I want that income to be as high as, as possible. Uh, so the, the, the principle here is called maximin. So we maximize the minimum. So we make the minimum as high as possible. This rule gets the name maximin or the, the principle gets the name maximin because it basically says people in the original position will maximize the minimum standard of living in society. It's a tad technical, but it's worth mentioning that maximin 
and the difference principle are actually distinct. So maximum is a, sort of a rule that Rawls thinks that people from behind the veil of ignorance would use to choose the difference principle. So, so they're related but distinct. One last thought about the two principles. Right. So Rawls thinks that the, the basic principles of justice take a particular order. And so the, the principles governing basic liberties, so things like freedom of speech and assembly, religious practice, personal property, occupational choice, and so on, he thinks that, that those take priority over uh, what you could call second principle considerations, so considerations of economic justice. And so what this means is that you couldn't force someone into a particular occupation or force them to associate in a particular way to accelerate economic growth or even to realize the difference principle. So you couldn't, for example, force uh, someone who's really talented to work in a particular job, even if that would maximize the income of the poor, because that would be inconsistent with the first principle, the respect for occupational choice. And so Rawls thinks you could never actually sacrifice first principle liberties for the sake of second principle economic considerations. This is a pretty worrying thing, actually. You might think it's totally fine and even required for us to treat the basic liberties as having precedence over considerations of distributive justice. In other words, to ensure that any redistribution of goods and burdens we do doesn't infringe on basic liberties. But this leads us down a decidedly libertarian path and away from a path that modern progressives or even center-left liberals are going to like. We'll see how this happens when we get to Nozick, but it's worth noting that Rawls in his later life was a little more libertarian than left liberal, much to the chagrin of people like me who sort of think that Rawls's basic ideas lead to a pretty socialist conclusion rather than anything resembling libertarianism. Let's take a break, and then we'll talk about three different critiques of Rawls from fairly different political perspectives. Let's start with the critique of Rawls that is perhaps the most famous one. It came from right down the hall from Rawls at Harvard from a fellow named Robert Nozick, who wrote about a lot of varied topics in philosophy, including philosophy of mind and, um, and, and philosophy of, of causation and, and uh, knowledge, epistemology, and all sorts of things. But then he also wrote a book that basically takes a sort of libertarian perspective on problems of distributive justice. And that book is called Anarchy, State, and Utopia. So here's his critique. Yeah, so, so Nozick too thinks there's something wrong with just thinking, okay, society's resources are up for, up for redistribution and it's just a matter of figuring out the right way to do it. He actually thinks there's, um, th there's something wrong uh, or maybe even inconsistent with the way Rawls thinks about property. And I have to admit, this is, this is uh, my reading of Nozick. Uh, so I, I can't quite say whether Nozick himself would endorse this, but I, I think this is maybe the most charitable way of reading him. So I mentioned earlier that Noz or I'm sorry, that Rawls says, okay, have these, these principles, these liberties, and those take priority over other considerations, including economic considerations. Well, one of uh, the basic liberties for Rawls is uh, the exclusive use of uh, your property. 
And so Nozick says, or he, he suggests that there might be an inconsistency between protecting property as a basic liberty and then redistributing that property in the name of, of the difference principle. So Nozick points out that a right to property is in tension with the notion that we are, in setting up society, deciding on rules governing how to distribute goods and burdens among all citizens of that society. This is especially true if the right to property takes precedence over considerations of distributive justice, of how to justly distribute benefits and burdens in society. And to make this point, he gives us a very famous thought experiment uh, about Wilt Chamberlain, who I, sadly nobody knows anymore. Uh, but I think he might have been the, the GOAT uh, basketball player. I'm from Philadelphia and he played for uh, Philadelphia, so I might be biased. I don't know. If, yeah, if I were behind the veil of ignorance, I might say something different. But so uh, Nozick says, look, uh, imagine that, uh, you know, I don't know, a town or a society has, has realized the difference principle. Uh, income has been distributed perfectly according to, to the difference principle. Uh, and then Will Chamberlain comes to town and says, all right, uh, I'll, I'll start playing basketball games for everyone. And uh, if you want to watch me, uh, you can uh, pay me 25 cents per game. And so he plays and some of the people uh, give him the 25 cents per game. All of a sudden he's very, very rich. And, you know, the difference principle is disrupted. So the difference principle is no longer realized. It wouldn't even take anything clearly manipulative or coercive to get rich. If you're extremely talented like Wilt Chamberlain was, then you might be able to ask for even a small amount of money from each person to watch you play and get rich because so many people want to watch you play. Nozick says, well, what do we say about this case? If justice is about achieving the difference principle, then we're kind of forced to say that this post-Wilt Chamberlain distribution is unjust because it no longer realizes the difference principle. But Nozick says, it, it's gonna be really hard to explain why it's unjust. So uh, one way of thinking about this is, is who exactly has a complaint in this scenario? Can Wilt complain about it? It's like, I don't see how Wilt can complain about it. He had the freedom to choose his occupation, to play basketball by Rawls' own lights, because that's a basic liberty. Uh, Wilt's fans had the right to their property by Rawls' own lights. Uh, and so they were free to give it to Wilt in exchange for watching him play. And the people who didn't want to watch Wilt play, they have exactly as much property as before, so they can't complain either. And so Nozick's view, at least as I read him, is that if Rawls really took things like the, the right of personal property and occupational choice seriously, uh, he would see that a commitment to the first principle kind of prevents you from even getting to the second principle. Uh, the, the second principle is basically going to be incompatible with proper respect for the, the economic liberties contained in the first principle. Another way of thinking about this critique is as a sort of external critique of Rawls. Nozick basically points out that Rawls should be more libertarian if he follow his own ideas about the ordering of the two principles of justice. An external critique, though, would be to say, sounds great, Rawls, but you can't deal with the basic intuition that sometimes people engage in truly uncoerced free exchange of goods and services and money, and since no one is coerced, it's all fair and good. No problems detected. You might think it's a bad outcome, but there's no procedural injustice. All of the procedures involved are just, so how can you complain? 
I personally find this challenging and annoying. I'm, I'm not a libertarian or anything like one, uh, but here are two quick responses. First, I don't buy that there's truly such a thing as uncoerced exchange of goods or services for the money. Every society that actually existed has employed some form of coercion, and usually that coercion looks like participate in the economy or you and your children will die an awful death. I don't believe that people can make uncoerced exchanges in today's society, but maybe they will be able to someday because we'll have uh, universal basic income, universal health care, and other basic rights secured from birth. Um, that's a question for another day. I also question uh, the roots of scarcity and scarcity is one of the principal ways that value, especially ex extreme differences in value, uh, are created. So, for instance, the accessibility of watching Wilt Chamberlain play basketball, that's a, a sort of scarcity. And the reason people might be willing to pay more is because of scarcity. And most scarcity is, in some sense, artificial, especially in a capitalist society. Another problem I have with the Wilt Chamberlain example is that I don't really believe in the right for people to charge whatever the market will bear. Again, maybe if society looked drastically different, then we could talk. But for now, it's not fair to charge more than is needed to fairly compensate all laborers involved in putting on an event. For a sporting event or music performance, for example, pay all the vendors, security guards, and so on, then pay the talent a moderate but fair amount based on the actual labor they expended in preparing for and putting on the show or, or playing in the game, and then divide by how many people are likely to buy tickets or will buy tickets, and that's your ticket price. There's no just reason why possession of a scarce good entitles you to take more of other people's money. I'll leave it there for now. I expect some people to just disagree with me on that point. Chris Fryman has his own critique of Rawls. I uh, asked him about it. Rawls thinks, and this is actually uh, part of what I criticize him for in okay. my book. So we say, okay, we got the basic principles of justice, and then we're trying to institutionalize them. Mm -hmm. Well, how should we think about the society for which we are institutionalizing these principles? Right. Rawls says, I want to theorize for what he calls ideal conditions. And this means he says, okay, imagine that everyone in society is motivated to completely comply with the principles of justice. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm gonna proceed on that assumption uh, when I'm designing institutions. So I'm designing institutions for people who are, who are fully committed mm -hmm. to my principles of justice. Uh, and, and you know, uh, so to, to give you a little bit of my criticism, I think one worry about that, that, that Rawls himself, I think maybe saw a little bit, but didn't really follow up on, is that you might think if people are fully committed to justice, you don't need anything that, that looks like the state. Mm. So just to take the, the case of the difference principle, uh, you know, I mentioned that what Rawls envisions to make the poorest as rich as possible was something like capitalism with a tax and transfer system. And then you know, his, his view evolved over time. But you might ask, and, and this is also something that the philosopher G.A. Cohen asked, well, why would you have to be taxed at all? if you were really committed to the difference principle. So suppose you're a really rich person who totally buys into Rawls's basic principles. 
And then Rawls knocks on your door and says, hey, uh, we need some of your income to maximize the income of the poorest. Well, if you totally buy into Rawls' system, it seems as though you would hand over that money voluntarily. And so it is a bit of a puzzle why Rawls thought he needed some of the institutions that, that he did think we needed. Like, why exactly would we need taxation? Or why would we need campaign finance regulation? This was another thing that Rawls thought we needed. Mm -hmm. He'd say, well, look, if people are, are fully just, they're not going to buy up elections. That's not a, that's not <laughs> a very nice thing to do. Uh, and so they would just, you know, refrain from doing so out of the goodness of their heart. And so this is, I, I do think, a, a serious problem with Rawls's institutional analysis, where he says, once we have the basic principles in hand, let's just figure out what ideal people would do with them. Now, to, to his credit, he, he also thought that the problem of uh, what he called non-ideal theory was also pressing. So it's not as though he thought, well, we do this ideal theorizing, and then we dust off our hands and move along. He realized that we did have to come down to the real world where people weren't fully compliant with justice. He, saw, he said, look, this is obviously a pressing problem. It's a, it's a big problem. He said a little bit about it here and there, uh, but it really was not the focus of his institutional analysis. This critique is related quite closely to that of Charles Mills and also that of Michael Fitzpatrick. We'll hear from each of them in the coming segments. But for now, let me summarize Fryman's critique. How am I supposed to design institutions and basic rules for society if I conceive of society as a free association of individuals equally committed to the principles of justice? One of the key functions of institutions in ordinary non-ideal society is that they counteract human vices like free writing, incompetence, forms of apostasy, for lack of a better word, weakness of the will, and selfishness. But if we don't theorize about a world filled with selfish, lazy, incompetent apostates, then we won't be very good at designing institutions, now will we? I hope I'm summarizing that. I hope I'm summarizing that correctly, Chris. I want to open our section on the late Charles Mills with a recording of him that's posted on YouTube. It's really fun, and I hope you get a glimpse into what a great orator and thinker Charles Mills was. He passed away in 2021 and is greatly missed by the philosophical community. Rawls says we should think of society as a cooperative venture for mutual advantage. Now, as an ideal, that's great. But our actual society is a cooperative venture for mutual advantage? Okay, so here's Rawls as filtered through Chris Rock as done by a somewhat inferior Charles Mills. So, <laughs> never mind the inferior performance of Charles Mills, just channel Chris Rock and project him onto this person here. So this is the founding of the United States according to John Rawls, because remember the United States, well, all societies for Rawls, cooperative venture for, did I get that right, for mutual advantage. Okay, so once upon a time, there was a big land, founding of the United States, remember. And on this land, there were three peoples. There were the red peoples, the white peoples, and the black peoples. The red people said, oh, white people, we're so glad to have you here. There we were, chasing the buffalo across the Great Plains. Got pretty boring after a while, you know. Been there, done that, you know. How many buffalo can you chase, you know? You've seen one buffalo, pretty well seen them all. Now that you're here, we're sure things are going to be different. As a measure of our gratitude that you're here, we're going to give you 98% of this land, you know, because we're not really using it. All this land, all this buffalo, we're going to give you 98% of it. So you might think, well, won't it be a bit crowded for the Western 2%? No, no, no. 
we will voluntarily undergo a 98% demographic collapse. So that means there was 2% left, so it'll fit well, 2% on 2%. White people said, thank you. <laughs> then the black people spoke up. The black people said, oh, white people, we're so glad you brought us here from Africa. As you know, it's a dark continent. Even if you try to turn on the lights, you can't see anything. Constantly being eaten by, you know, lions and, you know, let's face it, we don't like to admit it, but each other as well, you know, lots of cannibalism on the dark continent. You grab what you think is a chicken leg, it's actually your cousin, but, you know, you eat it anyway. <laughs> lots of bad stuff happening there. The voyage over, maybe a bit rough. We, we didn't realize we were going to be below the decks. We thought it was going to be first class. But anyway, not everybody made it, but, you know, we're glad to be here. As a sign of our gratitude, you know what we're going to do? You have all this land. We're going to work this land for you for free. You don't have to pay us anything. The white people said, thank you. <laughs> what are you waiting for? Lift that barge, tote that bale. And that is the history of the United States, according to John Rawls, as passed through Chris Rock, as channeled by an inferior Charles Mills. <laughs> A cooperative venture for mutual advantage. Thank you. I'm particularly fond of that routine, if I say so myself. <laughs> now, you might think it's absurd, and you'd be right. But it's an absurdity that white political philosophers have accepted and moved happily on. You know, it's hardly the case that anybody will point out, isn't there something crazy about this assumption? Chris Fryman of William and Mary again. And Charles Mills, who has another critique of Rawls. You know, one, one sort of, I don't know, one, one thing about Rawls's sort of choice scenarios, you say, okay, we're thinking of maybe income or resources as like a bunch of poker chips that are on a table and we're trying to figure out the right way to distribute them. And like that's, that's not quite exactly it because it's not exactly poker chips, but it's like about like structures for distributing poker chips. But it's like the poker chips are there. And then how do we, how do we arrange them? How do we distribute them? But of course, in the real world, like, Poker chips, are, they're not just there. Like resources are not just there. They came about in a particular way. Uh, and uh, frequently, they, the uh, distribution comes about in an unjust way. So the, the real world distribution of resources is corrupted by historical injustice. Uh, things like uh, slavery, Jim Crow, and so on. And so when Rawls is doing ideal theory, where he's saying, okay, like just imagine that, you know, the resources or the structures or whatever we choose of that, you know, whatever we choose them to be, uh, we choose the basic principles and then we imagine that society is perfectly just and then move from there. That kind of ignores this huge problem that, uh, you know, in the real world, institutional structures are deeply unjust. Uh, and historically, the distribution of income that we've arrived at, arrived at as a result of injustices. And so there are these questions about, you know, whether Rawlsian theory can, can sort of adapt to address this problem. But I do think it's, I, I think it's, a, it's a serious problem, and I'm not sure that, that Rawlsians have sufficiently addressed it. Like, I think this is really a deep problem with ideal theory. Uh, the, the, the problem of abiding institutional injustice and historical injustice. Charles Mills thinks that Rawls is living in a white fantasy where everyone just comes together and makes society together. Kumbaya. But that's not what happened, and certainly not in America. Rich white folks, with the help of poor white folks, kidnapped and enslaved, tortured and murdered West and Central African human beings, and built an entire economy on their backs, all while invading an entire continent filled with North American indigenous people. 
It was not kumbaya. It was naked violence and savagery of the highest order. I'm Michael Fitzpatrick. I'm a doctoral candidate in philosophy at Stanford, where I work on epistemology and various topics in the history of philosophy. But I consider my vocation teaching. Um, I teach philosophy at De Anza College and Menlo College. And I don't consider philosophy my vocation because I think philosophy is better understood as a way of living one's life. Here's Michael Fitzpatrick talking about this sort of critique of liberalism. So suppose you thought to yourself, why would anybody want to be in a society where their ancestors had been forcibly kidnapped and there was going to be no redress? I think this gets to a deeper problem with the liberal tradition itself, which is the liberal tradition is built on these just-so stories about how humans had no choice but to enter into society with each other. And then those stories are built around theories of consent and social contracts. And so there's a sort of foundational image that society exists because people needed each other and wanted to be in society together. But in the actual history of human communities, that's wildly not the case. And so maybe the liberal tradition is not the best way to think about politics. This last segment is with a close friend of mine, Michael Fitzpatrick, from whom you just heard. So John Rawls and I have an interesting philosophical relationship in that I think he's wrong about most things, but I really enjoy Rawls as a philosopher. I think he's exciting to read, and I think he does things in a way that I find philosophically satisfying, which is he takes a very simple idea and then works it out across a huge range of subjects. And I think the best philosophy looks like that. So when I criticize Rawls, it's not from the point of view of somebody who's like intuitively antagonistic. It's I just think he's wrong about some things. Okay, so Michael has three central complaints about Rawls. And what those things are come down to what I sometimes term Rawls's three basic assumptions. Um, some of these come early in his work in A Theory of Justice. Some of these come later on in his thinking. But his three basic assumptions are, number one, that when we're theorizing about a just society, we have to assume that no one can enter or exit that society. Number two, that pluralism is an ineradicable condition of society. And number three, that only artificial inequalities between people are invidious. And I think these three assumptions, while compelling for a lot of people, um, I think lead to really significant problems. So I'll start with just as a small example, 
the third assumption that only artificial inequalities are invidious. So Rawls says that social inequalities are tolerable only as long as they're um, based on luck rather than merit, and they tend to advantage the most disadvantaged in society. Um, but what this implies is that if I am among the most disadvantaged in society, and I'm in Rawls's conception of justice, then my inferiority in that society is fully justified. <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing wrong with it, since it's not a result, on his view, of someone doing something unjust to me or some unjust institution. It's simply bad luck for me or for my community. And um, it's much easier to accept social inequalities if we think they're the result of blind forces rather than something like discrimination. And this distinction results in social powers, the people who have the means of production or the means of making laws, to work very hard to ensure that the rest of us are gaslit into believing that artificial inequalities are actually natural or the result of luck. So my response would be to say against Rawls that we should just say there are no non-artificial inequalities, or to put it the other way, all inequality is luck-based, not merit-based. So Michael first critiques Rawls's third assumption, and the third assumption is something like, I think of Rawls kind of thinking like an economist. So it's like as long as it arises, as long as inequalities arise out of just the workings of a free market, then there's no problem and that there's going to be a certain amount of luck in life and in the economy. And so we can't eliminate all of the luck and all of the inequality. And so and so when we go to root out inequalities that are unjust, we're only looking for the ones that are artificial or are based on things that don't just arise out of the luck of ordinary life or the, the workings of a free market or something like that. One of the problems with this is that it gives a sort of out to the people who would want to convince us that we are responsible for our own success and failure in this market and want to convince us that the market is free when in fact it is far from it. Michael's next critique of Rawls in some ways echoes that of Chris Freiman from earlier. At least there are some similarities there. Rawls's project is tricky when you think about it as having some relation to the real world where we have porous borders between societies and people coming and going in different ways and under different circumstances. So my principal uh, criticism of Rawls has to do with assumption number one, that no one can enter or exit society. This is an assumption that runs through the entirety of Rawls's work. In a theory of justice, he has a very famous passage at the beginning where he says um, he doesn't assume that his principles hold for all cases. And um, it may be that principles for international relations or private associations might be different. 
And then he says, and now I'm quoting Rawls, I shall be satisfied if it is possible to formulate a reasonable conception of justice for the basic structure of society, conceived for the time being as a closed system isolated from other societies. And then he somewhat annoyingly says, the, the significance of this special case is obvious and needs no explanation. It is natural to conjecture that once we have a sound theory for this case, the remaining problems of justice will prove more tractable in the light of it. Well, what was obvious to him is not obvious to me. Um, and I actually think this reveals something very deep about how Rawls thinks about politics. Rawls thinks that the political situation is one where for any arbitrary group of people, you just need to figure out how to get those people to exist peacefully. And whatever works for one arbitrary group of people works for any arbitrary group of people. And I think that is for him the basic political question. And I want to reject that as the basic political question. So to recap, Rawls seems to think that the basic political question is how to get any group of people to exist peacefully. And if that's your goal, then it seems sort of obvious that you won't have a lot of content to your political philosophy. You'll instead just be focused on how to keep the peace and prevent the breakdown of society. Now to Rawls' credit, he goes much further than trying to prevent the chaos that would come with the breakdown of society. He wants to explicate what it would be to have a just society. But if his starting point is really about getting any old random group of people to coexist together, then he doesn't seem to have a very inspiring idea of what humans can create together. I think the basic political question is the one that was at issue between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., which is the question, why should black folk choose to be in society with the white people they find in their proximity? Or to put it in a more general way, why should this group of people be in society with those particular people? And that is a question that Rawls never gave an answer to. Um, he does work out in some places in a theory of justice a justification for why people in general need society. So he's not a hardcore individualist in that sense. But he never gives us an answer for why, if we need people in general, why we should be in society with these people in particular. And when you think about the issue that was between a Malcolm X or a Martin Luther King Jr., the issue between them is the people that we're in society with have committed enormous atrocities against us, and we don't even have any clear reason to think that they're not going to continue to do so in the near future. And so under what sense do we have any kind of political ob obligations to those people? And it's the, the failure to sort of navigate that kind of relationship that I think makes Rawls's founding assumption that we're going to theorize a society in which nobody is coming in or coming out really problematic. And maybe the answer is that you shouldn't be in a society with people who hate and brutalize and denigrate you. 
I think Malcolm X at some point in his life, in particular before his pilgrimage to Mecca, thought something like this. But Rawls doesn't even give us the tools or resources to use in trying to answer this question. He leaves us thinking about how to form society with people in the abstract without much to say about whether and how to form society with those people over there. This starts to sound more like the critique from Charles Mills. So let me expound on how Rawls progresses through his thought and why I think this really exacerbates the problem that I've raised. Rawls writes um, a sequel to his foundational works called The Law of Peoples. And it's essentially his theory of international relations. What it turns out to be is essentially a, an iteration of the principles in a theory of justice and its sequel, political liberalism. So while he says as a foundational assumption, he doesn't assume his principles will work in other domains, he ends up saying his principles will work in all domains. But the problem is that he's holding fixed the theory of justice that he's developed in his earlier works. And so when he goes to think about international relations, he's assuming that it's relations between societies that have already adopted the theory of justice that he developed in a closed society. Rawls' work on international relations seems to assume that the societies relating to one another on the international stage are all governed by basically just rules and institutions. Why is that problematic? Well, think about this from the point of view of a black political theorist. What could the assumption of a closed society mean to them? I mean, they're, they're thinking of uh, being a part of an ancestral tradition where their ancestors were forcibly removed from another society and brought to this now arbitrarily closed society against their will. We're now theorizing justice for that closed society and then iterating those principles out to the relations between that society and the societies where their ancestors were forcibly removed from. So those two assumptions um, show that the, the, the picture of justice that Rawls is working with is one that makes that kind of historical relationship between one society and another invisible. And from other points of view besides Rawls, you might think, no, those historical relationships are actually the most crucial to understand what a true picture of justice should look like. Say, a picture of justice that involves some kind of racial reconciliation or reparations for harms committed, or so forth. On Rawls's structure, there's just no way to incorporate that kind of history into the framework that he's trying to build because of the founding assumption of a closed society. We just can't think about that kind of history on his framework. So to recap, three assumptions that Rawls takes on board at the beginning of his project are that we must assume an isolated and closed society when theorizing about a just society, two, that pluralism is inevitable, and three, that only artificial inequalities are unjust. 
Michael has spent some time critiquing the first assumption. People can leave society and people can enter society and enter into new societal arrangements with one another. And that can make a problem for Rawls's basic assumptions. So the last assumption of Rawls is that I noted is that pluralism is ineradicable. And he means something very specific by this, that competing conceptions of the good life um, will always persist in any just society. So he thinks no matter how just you make the society, people are going to disagree on what the good life is. The consequence that he draws from this is that the political conception of justice has to have priority over any particular community's conception of the good life. So if there's conflict between his conception of justice and some community's conception of what is good, his conception of justice has priority. I am a Platonist, which means I think there is a, an objective conception of what is good. So this means that bringing that conception of the good to bear on politics is just ruled out of bounds, except insofar as it is something that can be justified on reasons not unique to um, a particular conception of the good. An example of why this becomes problematic is one of the things it would rule out would be Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail, in which one of Martin Luther King's justifications for his actions was um, that he's appealing to what he called the moral law. So one of the questions he was asked was, how do you know whether a law is just or unjust? His response was, and I'm quoting now from the letter, a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. End quote. Now, you may disagree with Martin Luther King Jr.'s rationalization there, but the point is his civil rights work was motivated by saying the temporal laws that we create in a society answer to something higher than themselves. Um, Rawls rules that out of bounds. He thinks that while we can reform the law, it has to be by appealing to constraints legitimated only by his conception of justice. Michael doesn't like Rawls' conception of public reasons, which are reasons that anyone can appeal to regardless of their conception of the good or regardless of their religious commitments and regardless of other metaphysical or value commitments that aren't universal to all others in society. This is sort of liberalism 101. I can't say you can't get an abortion because the Bible says you can, which is false, by the way. The Bible doesn't explicitly say much of anything about abortion, and what it does say suggests that it isn't murder. Anyways, I am, however, allowed to say something like, we think abortion should be illegal because it's the taking of an innocent human life, and all such instances should be illegal. 
everyone at least basically agrees that there's such a thing as an innocent life and that it's generally bad to end them and maybe even that those kinds of categories should play a role in in legal reasoning and jurisprudence. So it's fair game for me in a liberal democratic society to appeal to these sorts of universal values. Michael sees this as needlessly constraining on what sorts of things we can appeal to in discourse about what sort of society we want to live in, because it restricts the sorts of legitimate reasons we can use in public reasoning to a very few and very abstract principles, and suddenly Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail carries no weight, and Michael thinks that's a bad outcome, and I'm tempted to agree with him, being myself a, a pretty big fan of that letter. Okay, so moving on. So I have a somewhat awkward relationship with Rawls in that I'm a critic of liberalism and of Rawlsian liberalism in particular, and yet I consider myself a practitioner of ideal theory, which might be one of Rawls's most well-known contributions to political thought. Ideal theory is an approach to particularly social and political philosophy that involves specifying how something would look in an ideal case so as to fully understand the concept we are striving for. Most apropos to this discussion, Rawls thinks that to understand justice, we should abstract away a lot about what makes society non-ideal in the here and now so that we can understand the concept of justice more clearly. Then we go back to the messy real world and do non-ideal theory, which is an attempt to work out where to go from here and how to get from here to the ideal society. So Charles Mills has lots of critiques of ideal theory, and they all center around the same basic idea that ideal political theory is based on abstracting away and therefore ignoring things like white supremacy, bigotry, racism, sexism, and other forms of gender discrimination, historical injustice, and countless other things. Mills wonders if we are left with anything useful at all. What good is an ideal if we have no sense of the relation between the ideal and the current situation? I see myself as somebody working in the tradition of Plato, who is often associated as another ideal theorist. So for that reason, I have some reasons to value Rawls's contributions on ideal theory even if I disagree with his particular instance of it. And the way I understand Rawls on ideal theory is, and I would share this view, that all theory is both ideal and non-ideal. That for him, these are not competing conceptions of political philosophy, but rather complementary. And he thought that ideal theory is the more fundamental of the two only because ideal theory gives you a basis by which to make the criticisms needed to motivate a non-ideal theory. So let's say that ideal theory is the picture of what the world should be, and non-ideal theory for Rawls is a picture of the world with the obstacles in it, that have to be addressed to move towards the ideal. And so Rawls thought we should have some kind of reflective equilibrium where we're moving back and forth between the ideal picture and the on-the-ground presentation of non-ideal theory. 
And not just in the sense that they're each fixed and we're trying to just figure out how to move, you know, lessen the distance between them. He also suggests that they can modulate each other. And I think this is something that Rawls is not often given credit for, that we can actually change what our ideal is based on the contributions of the non-ideal representation of the facts on the ground. Where I think the reason comes that Rawls isn't given this credit is because while he said these nice things, it's not clear that he actually practiced them. And I think the criticism that a lot of people have brought against Rawls is justified in that he seemed to mostly just do the ideal theory side of it and not bring in the non-ideal contributions. But I think his principal framework was correct. And even if Rawls isn't a good embodiment of it, it's something we should still practice today. But I suppose I'm sort of channeling Charles Mills when I say, why do we need an ideal conception? Isn't it enough to just know which direction to head and what to do next? I'm moved by Charles Mills when he argues that ideal theory idealizes away too much. Then we get lost in the wilderness because ideal theory didn't give us a sort of guide as to how to proceed next. I'm planning on having a more in-depth conversation with Michael for a long-form interview, and we'll say more there. But for now, the question is, what good is a conception of the ideal if we're stuck in a world that is very much non-ideal? So we need an ideal conception of justice or the social good or the common good, because wherever we find ourselves in a particular political situation... In order to make progress at all, we need to set a direction for ourselves to move. So I'll give an example of what I mean by this. Um, Amartya Sen is one of Rawls's most famous critics on this point. Sen says, we don't need an ideal theory at all to rectify injustices in the world. Um, and the, the basic thought is that you know, we, d- we don't need to know what the just society looks like to know that, uh, you know, this slave trader whipping a black body in front of us is a terrible world to live in. Um, the problem, though, that I think there is, it ignores the ambiguity of a world without slavery or a world without racism. Because as ironically, artificial intelligence has taught us lately, there's more than one way to solve a problem. Um, In artificial intelligence, if you tell an AI to beat a game, it might beat the game the way it's intended, or it might just turn the game off because the AI can't discriminate between what is more appropriate and less appropriate ways of solving problems. And politics is very similar, where okay, yes, we can identify that something is a problem without maybe a conception of, the, of what we should do, but we won't know which direction to move in making progress on that problem if we don't have an, an ideal that orients the direction in which we're going to move. I'm still a wee bit skeptical of this. And, and like I said, Michael and I will be exploring this concept together in greater depth. But for now... Let me just register one potential worry. 
if I'm lost in the wilderness, I might not need to know where I'm going to end up as long as I, I know what step will lead me more immediately to ruin and disaster and what step will secure something good for me right now. If I know there's a stream nearby and I need water, I don't need to know where to set up camp for a long period of time or which direction home is. I just need to find myself to water. More on this analogy later when Michael and I talk at greater length in another episode, but I, I think these kinds of landscape analogies are, are extremely helpful in thinking about the, this problem and the relationship between non-ideal and ideal theory. So if you think of this geometrically, we're moving in 360 degrees, which degree do I pick to start making progress? So the picture I like to use is, you're lost in the woods, you're trying to find your way home, and we need to move in a particular direction. Ideal theory is simply the compass that says, this is the direction to move towards home. That doesn't eliminate the uh, non-ideal realities of maybe I broke my leg, or you've broken your leg, and we need to make a splint, and we got to get out of this crevasse first. Absolutely. But None of those actions, splinting legs, getting out of crevasses, building signal fires, whatever, will have any value if we don't have some sense of what rescue means or what getting home means. An ideal does not have to be a fully fleshed out picture of what the world should be. It just needs to be something that sort of gives us a vision of the direction in which to move. give my pal Michael the last word on this for now. Thank you so much to my guests Chris Fryman and Michael Fitzpatrick. Thanks to Rawls for being an interesting thinker worth engaging with. And to the late Charles Mills, I say rest in power, my guy. You were an inspiration. Thanks finally to you for listening. It genuinely means a lot to me that I got to have some of your attention for a time, and I hope I earned it. You know, a lot of people have heard of the philosopher Diogenes the Cynic, who said to Alexander the Great, stand out of my light, when asked what he wanted most in the world. But very few people know what he said immediately after. Don't okay. scream at me, and I think it'll be all right. And this has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin.